Lord, we thank you that you are the God of all comfort and you're the God of all peace. And you told us to comfort one another with the same comfort we have received. Lord, we have received many different news this year of many different brothers and sisters who have lost a loved one. Uh, and Lord, we've even done some of their memorial services, even in this fellowship, Lord. And it's tough to hear of what happens when we lose a loved one. But Lord, I know in confidence that you are willing to save anyone. If they call upon your name, Lord, they would be saved. And I thank you that the gospel can save anyone. Please, Lord, through these mornings and times of difficulties, may the gospel go forth in power and strength to save those who would believe. Lord, please help and comfort Rick and Celia and the family. Lord, we ask you that your Holy Spirit will draw near to them and bring them, Lord, the peace of Jesus. And Lord, we have a best friend, the Holy Spirit, in us. He will guide us and strengthen us because it is the comfort of Jesus. We pray that that would be felt, literally felt, throughout the family, that they would be drawn near to Jesus, to the Savior. Who can save? He's the only one. And Lord, I pray for our trip to Mexico. I pray for our brothers and sisters there who meet in a home, just like what Paul used to write and visit people in homes. We pray we can follow the same pattern of the apostles to visit those in homes, those in churches, those believers who need edification, strengthening, building up. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would be able to baptize people there and be able to see people come to faith. Lord, all this we commit to you and into your hands. Lord, provide. Lord, we've taken a step of faith to uh, take the resources that we have in our church and allocate them to a place that needs the gospel, a place that needs to hear your word and your truth and supply all of our needs, Lord. You promised that through Christ Jesus, through the riches of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Bless Luz Adolfo and the family and those believers in their home. Lord, we're connected to them. We may be many miles away, but we are connected to them through the Holy Spirit. And because of the love of Jesus, there are brothers and there are sisters. And we ought to take care of them, Lord God, as you lead us. So please help our prayer life uh, be changed by adding them to our prayer life. Uh, that our resources will be allocated, Lord, to bring the gospel to not just to Mexico, but Philippines and Australia and different places, Lord, that we have, uh, that you have opened our doors. We pray, Lord, that all this will be done in the power and in the presence of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Let it not be the flesh. Lord, if it's the flesh, we would fall very, very flat and will be no glory to you. But Lord, if it's in the Spirit, it'll be glory to you and edification to your people. Lord, for your word today, may it go out in power and strength Lord, we didn't come here to be entertained. We came here to be built up in our most holy faith. So help us, Lord, to be built up. Help us to obey what we read and to do it in a way that it'll be the power of the Spirit in our lives, in and through us, bringing the gospel, not only to the people that we know and love, but also, Lord, that we would live the gospel and that we would follow through with what it says and we would continue to believe it so that, Lord, as we sang today, when we... When that trumpet sounds, Lord God, we will be with you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Romans chapter 1. And uh, this is the third message in Romans, and we haven't even got past the first 16 verses yet. So 
I have to uh, change my prognosis. It may not be a year, maybe three years before we get to finish Romans, but nonetheless, we, um, we want to be faithful to God's Word. We also don't want to rush through it. We want to continue to teach through it. So we're in verse 16 and 17, and this is Paul's message to that church in the city of Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, that was to the Gentiles, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous, but the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood, though, what has been made, through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. We're not going to get that far, but seem to want to read what's ahead for next week because uh, it's going to get even more intense. First three chapters of Romans, at least the first half of chapter three, deals with one subject or two subjects are related, the sin of man and the wrath of God. And it has to start with sin. We cannot accept the gospel until you realize it is about sin. Sin in the heart of men. Sin in the heart of men. Not the habits of men, not bad habits, but sin. And you could see that, uh, uh, no pun intended, the I is in the middle. I is in the middle of sin. I is in the middle of that word. Absolutely. Until we come to the realization that the pagan world, religious people, moral people, you and I, we all have sin all the same way. They, some other people may do it more overtly. Some people maybe do it more uh, outlandish. They'd be more obvious Certainly we live that way. Some of us live that way. And it was clear that we were sinners. It was clear and evident. And people would say, oh, those people, they, they really need Jesus. But then the Bible also says in the first three chapters of Romans that also the religious people have sinned. Religious people have sinned. Moral people have sinned. Because they're trying to achieve that which God offers for free through their own works and through their own morality. And the reality of what pagan or ungodly living is, is that you can tell what it is. You can tell that they have sinned against God and gone against his laws. But the moral person has done it just as much, and the religious people have done it just as much. It is called hypocrisy. It is called hypocrisy, religious hypocrisy. So one thing Paul is going to deal with is, and next week will be very evident, how do pagans sin? How does the Gentile world, we would say sin. It is obvious it is of sexual nature. It is obvious of sexual nature. In fact, when you live in a certain lifestyle, you live in certain sins, they degrade to sexual sin of some sort or another. It will degrade to sexual sin. But then don't feel bad about it. You go, oh, man, what about it? You know, I've never done that. Chapter 2 and 3 deals with those who were trying to be good and try to live a a moral life, a religious life. And that's the first three chapters. Later on, we'll talk about chapter four and eight, which is all about justification. How does God justify people like you and me who have sinned? 
How can a righteous God deal with unrighteous people? And we'll talk about that more in general, even today. So the previous message, Paul has said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He has been, he calls himself a servant. He calls himself uh, the servant of God, the apostle of God, and he has a calling on his life. And the calling of his life was to preach the gospel and to be, he was set aside for the gospel. He was set aside for the message of the gospel. And we looked at the fact that he wasn't ashamed of it because obviously there was an underlying thought. The church in Rome had never met Paul. They'd never seen him. They had no idea who he was in terms of face-to-face. But Paul said, I've been wanting to come to you. I want to come to this church. I want to come and preach. And the underlying thing is, I am not ashamed to come to you and preach the gospel. Uh, some people may be ashamed, and we talked about being ashamed of the gospel, how uh, maybe in suffering, if you're a Christian and you suffered for the Lord, that might bring some shame. Uh, maybe the loss of things in your life. Maybe you gave up a career or a life that you could have had in this world, and you go out and serve the Lord, especially uh, missionaries, people that are dedicated in the mission field and teaching you had to give up things. You gave up maybe a, a corporate life or you could have had a better job or this other job, but then you knew the Lord called you in a different direction and you gave that up and you said, this is for Jesus. And later on you go, oh, well, I'm kind of ashamed of that. I could have had a better life here. And people can become ashamed of their sufferings in Christ, of their calling in Christ, or they're bringing the salvation message to the world that doesn't believe because uh, we talked about how amazing the gospel is, the message of salvation. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm willing to go to the whole world, to the Roman Empire. And of course, the center was Rome. And the gospel was the gospel of righteousness, the gospel of righteousness, because it is the gospel that God wants to make people right with him. He is right and we are wrong. And he wants to make us right. But there's a great underlying thought is, how is he ever going to do this? Because if he is totally right, then he has to deal with our sin. If he's totally right, he can't allow us to continue in sin because he is a righteous God. And so in one aspect of it, uh, church fathers uh, believe that this was the gospel that needed to be preached. The letter of Romans was a a message that needed to go out to Christians as well as non-Christians because it was the power of God to change us and to mold us. And so Paul says, why? Uh, He's not ashamed, but the question I have is, why isn't Paul ashamed? Well, let's read again verse 16. Because it is the power of God. It is the power of God. Uh, The whole verse there, 16 and 17, we brought, this is just from last week. So if if you're kind of reviewing a little bit, this is um, for those maybe who weren't here or haven't caught up to it yet. The key word in those two passages is the word for, three letters. For, F-O-R. We don't say those things like that. We don't talk like that anymore. For it is the gospel. For it is salvation. For it is revealed. We use the word because. And that's what the word is. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. That's what Paul is saying. Why is he not ashamed of it? Because it is the power of God for salvation. That is the message that Paul wanted to preach. It's the power of God. But salvation, it's something very special, something very unique. What is it? Because we talked about yet last week that it's not salvation from poverty. It's not salvation from psychological problems. It is salvation specifically dealing with a spiritual salvation. 
Because of sin, something's wrong with the way we were born. Because of sin, something's wrong with the, per, uh, with the individual, us, the way we were born. The first birth carries sin. That's why we need to be born again. So salvation is spiritual. It has in its result salvation of problems, salvation of physical things, salvation of psychological things. It does carry that because if you are saved, we would say, if you are spiritually right with the Lord, then a lot of problems that you dealt with in the past go away. You don't drink anymore. Praise the Lord. <laughs> All of a sudden, your liver thanks you. All of a sudden, your kidneys work better, right? All of a sudden, you're not so hungover anymore. All of a sudden, you have a change. There's a physical change that happens. But it's not, salvation wasn't for the physical per se. It starts spiritually from your sins. Then things begin to happen. Then you don't cheat on your wife anymore. You have a good marriage. Then you uh, don't act like that anymore. And you have, you're a good parent, right? It has, and you have peace because you're not doing those things anymore. And all those regrets and guilts and failures, they're no longer there. You're, they're under Jesus now. He bore those sins on the cross. So it has an aspect of psychologically helping you. But the first and foremost part of salvation, that it is spiritual. It deals with sin. Now, salvation is quite interesting in the Bible. This is what we're talking about salvation. And last week we left off with it has a three-pronged effect. A three-pronged effect. And what I mean by that is that it affects your past, it affects your present, and it will affect your future. And the Bible uses those three terms when dealing with salvation. We looked at one of them, which was uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You can write it down on your own, just wanted to move on to the present one. But the past tense, the Bible uses the salvation in the past tense. For by grace you have been saved. You have been saved, right? How did you come to salvation? You heard the gospel, the message of God. It is the gospel of God. And you obey the gospel by coming to God on his terms. By coming to God on his terms. Well, what is his terms? What are the terms? Death to self and life in Jesus. Those are the terms of the gospel. Death to self, alive in Jesus. And baptism is the perfect picture of that. What happens when you get baptized? You go under the water that's a symbol of death to self. You're leaving your old life behind. You're burying the old man. You're burying the corpse. You're burying the person. It's done. He goes underwater. Let him stay underwater. Then you come back up again unto newness of life, the resurrection. Death to self, alive in Jesus. That is the gospel. Those are his terms. That is what, how you come to him. It is simply by his grace through faith. You are saved by grace through faith. You have been saved. There's a past tense. But then the Bible also speaks of what's currently happening in you. And we use one of them. And this, oh, maybe we didn't look at it. Romans 12. Let's turn to the right a little bit. Same book. Romans 12. Paul addresses this issue of current salvation. And the current salvation is there is a present work within you today. There's a present work within you today. And that is this famous verse that many of us know and memorize. I encourage you to do that. I urge you, my brethren, uh, therefore my brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies, talk about your physical bodies, a living holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or your worship service. 
that, and, and don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing, renewing a present continuous, right, of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, renewing of the mind is not a one-time event. Renewing of the mind is renewing. It's like running, you know. It's like I ran, therefore I don't run anymore, right? Many of us may feel that way, right? But if I say I am running, that means he's probably going to run tomorrow. I'm not, but I'm just saying you're probably going to continue doing that action. Well, this is an action that means to renew your mind through the Word of God by the Holy Spirit, the renewing of the mind. It's a continuous action to bringing you to, the conform, to be conformed to the image of Jesus, which is Romans 8. We'll get to that 2020 or something like that, right? Renewing of the mind, conforming to the image of Jesus. It's an ongoing process. It's not like the previous salvation that we talked about the past. By grace, you've been saved. In a moment, it became real. You believed the words of God. You came on his terms. And then you were baptized, and then you show that that is real. It happened to me. And then, now you begin to walk. And now the salvation is continually present in your life. Renewing of the mind. Is that something that goes on in your life, you would say? Well, if you answered yes, and says that I'm being saved, is how the Bible puts it. And Paul addresses the Corinthians. Are you being saved? In a sense of, is that something continually going on in your life? And then, of course, it is future tense and that is when the bible says you will be totally completely saved in a sense of that salvation has become complete you're now in the presence of jesus you're now in the presence of jesus so uh, we'll talk about that in a moment because it is the power of god that does this is the power of god and salvation is something very very fascinating because salvation is from something and for something. From and for. This seems to be very, very simple. It's not an English class, but it, it helps to know a little bit, right? From and for. If you're saved from something, you must be saved for something. And that is how the Bible puts it. What were we saved from? Well, the Bible says we were saved from sin. We were saved from sin. Now, sin had consequences. What are those consequences? Death. What's another one? Wrath of God. What's another one? Hell. The consequences, right? We were saved from sin. We were saved from that which bound us. And the Bible makes it clear. It's like being a slave. You were being a slave to that which you couldn't stop doing. Jesus made it clear. He who sins continuously is a slave to sin. You can't stop. Because that's your nature. And the Bible puts us all under that category. If you're born of a woman or a man, if you're born of a woman, dad, mom, if you're born of a human, you are bound to carry this sin nature in us. It goes back to Adam, through our parents, to us, and then through our children. It is something that it continuously happens in the human nature. And that is part of our dilemma. It is sin and how to deal with it. Well, the Bible says that was our master. It was a master. It was a taskmaster. But then the Bible says one day Jesus came, and he broke the chains. 
And he says, you're free now. But you're not free to yourself. You're free to serve me, Jesus said. Right? We are saved from sin for something. From the devil and his power, which he used sin in our life. Right? Sin was a way that the devil controlled us. But the Bible says that the, uh, the, the, the law showed you sin, and therefore sin was made real to you. And then the devil takes that, which you do, your sins, and he tempts you, and he continuously presents those opportunities in your life and you, and before you came to Christ, and you continue to sin. That was just normal. But he was in control of it. He thought you were. I thought I was. Right? But it was him who was bringing us through, and it was really easy. It was like a wind-up toy. You just wind it up and let it go. You don't have to worry about it. You just got to do exactly what your nature calls to do, which is contrary to God and contrary to the laws of God. Now, Jesus breaks the chains. He says, you're free, and you're free to follow me. You're not free unto yourself, because the Bible makes it very clear that once he's bought us, he literally bought you, you are no longer your own. How about that message? You want to be popular? Teach Romans 6. You'll be welcome in any church. I promise you that. I hope they don't run me out of this one when we get to Romans 6. You're not free to yourself. You are free to follow Jesus and to serve him. And the Bible uses that same word, slave to sin, slave to Jesus. I know we don't like slavery. It's been done away with in the Western world, still around in the world, mostly in the Muslim countries. But it's not something we could identify here. But it, the Bible uses the word slave, meaning that when you were slave to sin, you, didn't, you couldn't even stop sinning. That was part of you. That was what you did as a sinner, as somebody who continuously misses the mark and continuously disobeys God. But then Jesus gave you the power to break those chains. You broke them. Done. The power of the gospel, right? power of Jesus. Now you've been bought with the price, not with... Precious metals. Everybody seeks after them today, right? Not with those things. Not with the sacrifices of the law, bulls and goats, but with the precious blood of God's only son, Jesus. You've been bought with the price. So Paul says, my life is not my own anymore. I am owned by Jesus. I am not owned by me. I am not owned by the devil, praise God. I am not owned to my flesh or to my sins. I'm not owned by that anymore. But I am, have a new master, and he's a good master, but nonetheless a master. So what belongs to Jesus? Everything. A slave in the, in the, first, in the first century had no uh, rights as a, an individual in terms of the Roman Empire, had no rights. And that's the same word that is used in the New Testament for Christians, meaning that you have the right to do what Jesus says. You have the right to love him. You have the right to follow him. You have the right to do those things that he calls us to do. So none of ourselves is our own anymore. Our time is not our own. You ever wonder that? How wasteful we could be with our time. How foolishly we can use our time. Uh, our resources, like money, is not our own. I know there's a lot of people that says, you know, as long as I give to the church, the rest is my money to spend. Well, as Roy said, we don't, you know, we don't send you a bill in this fellowship. Right? We don't send you a pay do now. Uh, we, we, we don't, you know, course you or shake you or anything like that to, to get money out of it. We simply allow the Lord to move in your heart to give according to what you purpose in your heart to give. That's between you and the Lord. We thank the Lord for it and we use it to, as you can see, 
for the gospel. But don't think that, okay, I gave, the rest is up to me to, to use whatever. No, it's all his. It's, it's all his. And that's how you have to look at it as a Christian. My life, my resources, and one of the ways you can know if the Lord has really has you completely is when he has your money. Why? Because it's, a, it's the closest thing to idolatry in our world. Right? Even to Christians. Even to Christians. If you could see what a man spends the money on, you know what's important to him. Seriously. If, I'm not going to peek into your checkbook. Don't get me wrong. But I'm saying if you, if you could know what a person spends their money on, then you know what's important to them. Because that's what we do. What's, what we place value on. That's what we go in resources. So God gives us those resources. And so it's all his. It's all his. It's us to use. Slavery to righteousness. No longer slavery to sin, but to slavery to righteousness. We'll talk about what righteousness, what, what does that mean? Because it is right living, right standing with God. And so all those things are part of our salvation. To put it in biblical terms, here's one way of putting it in biblical terms. We're talking about justification, past tense. God saved you, called you, you responded, he saved you. He justified. Now, very, very important. Terms are very, very important in the Bible. He doesn't justify what you did. He doesn't justify your sins. God never justifies sins. What does God justify? The sinner. He doesn't say, it's okay what you did. Don't worry about it. Wink, wink. No. God takes sin very seriously. He justifies the individual who's guilty. But how does he do that? Just wait a little bit. I know the answer. You probably know the answer, but the Bible puts it in such beautiful way that you can apply it to your life in a very real, real terminology. Uh, justification. You are justified, not your sins. You were justified. Your sins were forgiven. You were justified through the death of Jesus, through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The second one is sanctification. Being saved has to do with your ongoing process to become more like Jesus. I know, we'll put it this way, because sometimes it's not explained this way in, in, in a lot of churches, is salvation is not about going to heaven only. Most people just think salvation, I'm going to heaven, praise the Lord. Got my ticket, I'm out. <laughs> and they go on. Salvation was not about just getting you to heaven, although it is the destination, Salvation is about totally removing sin from your life. God wants to restore his image and likeness in you. But he has to start somewhere. What material does he have to work with? Look in the mirror. Man. Oh, Lord. But then I read the Old Testament. I go, Lord, if you can save those, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. We did a study last week on how they behaved especially the, the, the fathers of those tribes, you can use anybody. The material that he has is us. The resources that, you know, the, the, what he has to work with is us. But God says, I started justify, with justification. I declare you justified. That means not guilty, right? That means not guilty or in a sense of it is guilt, but it's justified. You're not innocent, Okay. God doesn't say you're innocent. He says, not guilty. <laughs> that means I am not going to put a guilt on you. I know you did it. I know you behave that way. I know you sin that way. But God in his mercy will say, not guilty. 
But why? Because he is good. And he has the power of the gospel to do that. But he doesn't say innocent. I'm far from innocent. I'm very much guilty. But God declares not guilty people that are guilty. Again, how does he do that? We'll get to that. Sanctification. Now that guilty person has to grow. That, that innocent, all those terms. That person that was declared not guilty has to grow and get sin out of their lives more and more. Remember, God has given us a new nature now through the gospel. And that new nature becomes part of us. And we begin to behave like the new nature. And the old nature goes away. It starts going away. It starts going away. It's still there. It's still part of us. And that's the war that you and I have every day. That's the tension that you and I have. I'm going to follow the new nature or I'm going to do what the old nature wants to do. But the more you put it to death, it's easier to follow the new nature that follows after God, that longs for God. The old nature wants to do the things that you used to do. And it's comfortable and it's easy. And you've been doing it for, I don't know, when you got saved, you did it for 30-some years. It's easy to go back to that. But God says, now I'll give you the power of the gospel to continue living that way. And of course, glorification has to do when we see the Lord. We totally saved at that moment in time, totally saved from any sin. You won't have the sin nature in you anymore. And that's called glorification. That's the day where you could say, I am completely free from sin. And I'm going to look like Jesus on that day. And I don't know how that takes you. Maybe your husband and wife says, you know, I can almost come to the point of losing my faith that my husband one day will be perfect. That's incredible. Well, maybe so. But Carol's going to be very shocked to find Roy perfect as Jesus is. And I know my wife's in the back today, and she comes to the brink of losing her faith that one day her husband will be perfect too. <laughs> she almost stumbles. She almost stumbles at that. And she says, I just have the word of God to trust. That's all I have. Because if I base it on experience, that's not going to happen. <laughs> but that is what the Bible promises. Salvation. Completely saved from sin. Yes. At that moment in time, you can say, I am fully, fully saved. I don't have any traces of sin anymore. Until then, keep walking. Keep getting rid of sin in your life. By the gospel. You, can, you need the gospel. For, as, for everybody, though, it says in verse 16, it is for everyone. It is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. This is John 3.16 and Paul's way of saying it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes is for everyone. It's not for a select group of people that just won the lottery. It is absolutely for everyone, right? For everyone who believes. There's a qualification to it, right? It doesn't mean all people would be saved, but the gospel is for everyone. The gospel goes out to everyone, but is effective to those who believe. It's only effective to those who believe. I was with a friend of mine. He's a doctor, and we're talking about medicine and Talk about what works and what doesn't work. And, and we have friends that have, you know, dealing with, you know, diabetes and stuff like that. And what works and what doesn't work. And we talk about all kind of the epidemiology and sin. And, and, and sin. Well, that, that's part of it. But we're talking about sin. But sickness and disease. And it says, you know what? Unless you take that medicine, it will have no effect on your life. You can have the greatest medicine sitting on the shelf and go, man, I'm so glad I got the medicine. Spent 100 bucks on it. And it's sitting right there. And you're sick to death. And you're oh, 
Well, take the, well, what happened? Well, I got the medicine. It's right there. I have it. It's there. I, I paid for it. It's right here. It's a beautiful thing. It's, it says it works. Well, why haven't you taken it? Because I just feel so just good about having it there. Well, my friend, it could be the greatest medicine in the world. It won't do anything to you unless it's part of you. It's ingested and part of you. And so is the gospel. The gospel has to be made part of you. When you hear the word of the, of the Lord and the gospel, you need to ingest it. You need to make it part of you. Otherwise, you could hear it and go, I'm sure it saves people. I'm sure it has a great effect on people. And I'm sure those other people right there in the back need it. Not you guys, but, you know, you guys, <laughs> you guys need it. And I'm sure it could save them, but mm, not me. For whatever reason, whether we don't think we're sinful enough, or we don't think we're bad enough, or whatever it may be, we refuse to take it. For everyone who believes, everyone needs to believe, but not everyone will believe. Everyone needs to have faith, but not everybody has faith, the Bible says. And faith is really the hand, the hand of the heart stretching out to the Lord. The hand of the heart stretching out to God. Give me that medicine. Give me that medicine. We have a horrific disease in all of us. It is worse than any disease that you could ever find in this planet. It is worse than anything. It doesn't just destroy the body. It destroys the soul and the spirit. It can send you to hell. And that is sin. And yet the medicine that will counteract that and destroy that disease the Bible says it's as close as the words on your mouth. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right? You see how amazing God's power is. He can get rid of that by calling on him and receiving his word and making it part of it. On his terms, on his terms, death to self, alive in Jesus. Those are his terms. Well, let's continue. It's everyone who believes. Verse 17. For, I'm sorry, end of verse 16. I want to get to 17. Who, who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. Two categories of people, Jew and Gentile. God chose the nation of Israel to be his vehicle, his channel to bless all the nations. Read the Old Testament. Out of all the nations, all the nations in the uh, Genesis chapter 10, out of all the nations, God chose a man. Abraham, you'll be my vehicle. Abraham, your sons are going to be my vehicle too. And your sons' sons are going to be my vehicles. And you're going to have as many as the sands of the sea, many as the stars of the heavens. You're going to be the vehicle that brings salvation to the ends of the earth because from your seed, Abraham, will come the seed, Jesus. Galatians tells us who the seed is. Very specifically, it's the Messiah, who's a Jewish Messiah. But make no, no question about it. Make no question about it. Salvation is of the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. Jesus made that absolutely clear to a Samaritan woman. That salvation, the gospel, came from the Jews. That which we have in our lap today, in our, in our, in our hands, is of the Jews. It was given to them first. And it was given to them so they could be saved and they could bring salvation to the rest of the world. Realize that our Faith comes from the Jewish root. It's in the Old Testament, and it's in their environment. It's in their language. The New Testament, of course, is written in Greek, but it was written by Jewish people. It comes from them. It has Jewish imprints all over the place. But it's to bless all the nations because God is not preferring the Jews. He's not playing favorites with the Jews, right? The fact that he chose them doesn't mean preference. 
The fact that he chose them means that they had the opportunity first. Just like the Lord, Paul does the same thing to the Jew first. Who did God go to first to bring his message in the Old Testament? To the Jews. He picked them. Who did Jesus go to when he first came to this earth? Well, he was a Jew and he went to the lost tribe of Israel, the lost sheep of Israel, he says. Don't go into the ways of the Gentiles, Jesus said in Matthew. Go to the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. They need to hear it first. They had the promise first. But it wasn't just for them because it was going to go to the ends of the earth. And you're, the right, and you're one of those, my friend. You are one of those. And God in his intimate love had us in his plan. Before you were ever born, before you were ever born again, he knew you. He had a plan for you. All the things that happened to you, all the people you met, all the things that you did, all the work that you did, all the struggles that you had, all the failures, all the people that you encountered, bad people, good people, where you were born, what you did, and what brought you here, all was working together for God to bring you to salvation, to bring that message of the gospel to you. And now, of course, you look back and you go, my past makes total sense. It makes total sense why I went through what I went through. It makes total sense why I struggled. It makes total sense why I was born in that country, why I was born here, why I was born there. It makes total sense why I met that person and why I lost that job and what brought us here. God was working in your life, even though you didn't know him, to bring you to that point that you would be saved because Jesus said, salvation is of the Jews, but go out to the ends of the earth and make disciples of all nations. So they had the scripture. The Jews had the scripture before a church was ever built. They had the scripture before anything was, of Christianity was ever set up. And yet, to this day, most of them are blinded to the gospel. Most Jews are blinded to the gospel. And it's amazing to see, and we're going to, well, you can read it. We're going through the book of Acts in our Orange County Bible study. In the book of Acts, they persecute Paul. This very Paul who's writing this letter. They persecute him. And they said, Paul, we don't want to hear the gospel. We don't want to hear from Jesus. This is the Jewish leaders. We don't want to hear what you have to say. And Paul said, fine, I'm done. You rejected Jesus. I'm going to the Gentiles. And that, from that moment on, he set forth to go west, to go west to the European world. And if you have European descent, you would go, that's the day that God said, doors are open. Get, let the Gentiles in. The gospel is going out. But to the Jew first. To the Jew first. And this is a very important thing. We need to keep that in our minds as Christians. That mission is still the same. To the Jew first. This church in the book of Romans here had to be reminded of that. Remember I told you the struggle. The struggle was that they had believed. They started to believe that the Jews had no part in God's ultimate purpose of salvation. That they had forfeited because of the rejection of Jesus. That had begun to crept in into Gentiles thinking and mind and heart. Back then, and he corrects it, and he brings about the correction, and you're going to hit that crescendo, that climax, Romans 9 through 11. We'll get to that. We have a lot of fun with that. Because Paul's heart is this. Don't reject the Jew. God has not rejected him. Actually, you should go and give him a kiss. Seriously. What Romans 15 and 16 are all about. It's a holy kiss. Greet one another with the hope. Who's he telling that to to Gentile believers who needed to receive, Jewish believers who needed to receive the Jew with a holy kiss. That meant a, uh, um, 
an emotion, a love, right, an intimacy with them to bring them to Christ to the point that you would cause them to be jealous because their Messiah lives in your heart. Their Messiah lives within us. And so this is Paul's heart to the Jew first, but also to the Gentiles. God always wanted to save us. There's no difference with God. He's not respecter of people. He wants to save us all. But he has a special plan for the Jewish people. And we'll read that in Romans 11. It's not over yet. They seem to be have rejected. Most, most of them have mostly rejected them. I sat across at, uh, I didn't even call, call it a church, but Scientology building, witnessing to a Jewish man who had bought into Scientology, who had left the faith of his fathers, who had left the, the, the laws of Moses and the, and the prophets. And how many of them have gone that way into new age thinking and belief and philosophy. Of course, Kabbalah has a big part of that. But them still, the oracles of God, still was for them. They still could believe. But many times the church has rejected that. And most churches, I would say, have bought into replacementism, which means the Jews have no part in it anymore. The church is the only thing that matters. And the Jews cannot be a part of it because they rejected Jesus. Anyway, I can go on for a while. But that's not the point. Why? Is the power of God in the gospel? Why is the power of God in the gospel? Look at verse 17, because these are all questions to build on, right? Why is Paul ashamed? Is the power of God. Then why is the power of God in the gospel? Because it is the righteousness of God revealed. It is the righteousness of God revealed. Martin Luther looked at this when he was teaching at the Catholic Catholic Church as an Augustinian monk. And he said, I wish I'd never heard of this. I wish I'd never heard of the righteousness of God. Because it says that if the righteousness of God is true, then I am in bad shape. If God is righteous, this is not good news. It's bad news. Because if God is righteous, he has to deal with unrighteousness. And he knew in his heart, even though as an Augustinian monk, he had lived a very outside on the peripherals, looked very righteous and very pious. He knew what his head in his heart and in his soul. And it says, I hated to hear that, that God was righteous, because it wasn't good news. It meant God was going to deal with me and my sin, and he knew my secret sin and my thoughts that nobody else knew. But then he came to Paul, to the writings of Paul, and he read it again and again, looking for God to help him. And it said he found light and understood that It was the righteousness of God that is revealed. Yes, in one sense, it is a scary proposition to think of God's all righteousness dealing with me and you, me me and you, unrighteousness. But it's also the righteousness of God revealed that he wants to make you righteous. He wants to make you righteous. So what does that mean, righteousness? What is that? Legally and morally right, it's the definition of it. Legally and morally right. You can go to court today, right? And the judge can say whether you're right or you're wrong, depending on the case, right? In the Old Testament, uh, it was the same way. You can go before the judge, and the judge will say whether you're a wicked person, you were wrong, or if you were a righteous person, you were right. Righteousness had to do with being right, and that was in the Old Testament way. Right or wrong? How do you get right with God is the question. In the Old Testament, um, if you stood... Uh, By the Old Testament, God's standard was the law. To be right with God is to stand next to how many commandments? 
613. Ten famous, ten famous ones. We all know those, right? At least we should. We all know those. But those were a summation, a summary of the 613 laws. And I told you, I said, I, I could keep some of them. No problem. 613 laws, no problem. Give me one of them, right? Don't eat a bat. I could follow Jesus or follow the Lord in the Old Testament sense without any problems. Anybody here have a problem with that? Anybody want to eat a bat, a spider, creepy things? You are fulfilling the standards of God. Hallelujah. But that is one of them. If you get rot in your house, wood rot, termites, have you ever had one? Anybody have termites in there? Okay. Did you tear your house down in love for your neighbor? No, you broke the law. You've broken the law. Anyone here wearing um, a shirt that it's not pure cotton or pure flax or, okay, mixed material? You are all these sinners here. All these sinners breaking God's. Anybody worked yesterday? Anybody worked yesterday? You worked, okay. You broke the Sabbath law. My goodness, all these Christians breaking Moses' law, right? Well, in the Old Testament, that was the standard, 613, and that was just a few of them. And if you broke one, it's like a mirror. You ever try to, you know, not not that you purposely did, maybe you did. If you broke a mirror, you just can't say, well, I just broke that little tiny piece right there. The whole thing is compromised, and if you smash it in the middle, everything's broken. It's like a mirror. The Bible, the law is like a mirror, and the law is also like a chain link. And when you start with the chain link, you start with the first one, right? Love God. Have no other idols before him, right? Don't, don't make any image of him. You start with that, and you go right back down to the last one. What is the last commandment, 10th commandment? That's right. And you go all the way down, right? And it's like the same thing, right? Covetousness, the Bible says, is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. When you covet something, you want it so bad, right? And it could be any, anything can be an idol. People are hooked on pornography. It's idolatry. Worshiping an image. You're back to the same thing. You can't take it away. You can't break it apart because it's sin. You're bound by sin. But it's idolatry. What does the first commandment say? Don't be one. You're back up to the one. You break one, you break them all, right? It's like a chain link. They're all hooked together. You broke the first one, you broke the last one. You broke the last one, you broke the first one. It is setting up for you to know that no one can be righteous according to the law. Not one of us can keep it. Not one of us can be right. How can any of us be right with God? Well, here's an example. Paul said, I was a professional do-gooder. Philippians 3, read it. It says, absolutely, He was a professional do-gooder according to the law, blameless. If you're going to look at the law and put it in the outward appearance, just look at Paul from the outside and go, man, that guy, he's good. If anybody deserves to go to heaven, would be Paul. Why? Because he gave even of his condiments. A 10% of his condiments were given over to God. I mean, last time you gave 10% of your salt and brought it to Roy. Or brought it, you know, of your cumin, of your mint, right? And you brought it here, give it to Andres, here's the 10%. The Pharisees live that way, professionally wanting to be right. They might have had a good heart to start with and wanting to be right, but it fell into complete self-righteousness. Now they were do-gooders for themselves. And when Paul recognized that in him, 
And he says, I stood next to the commandments. And I looked at them and I pondered them and I came to the commandment that said, thou shalt not covet. And I found all covetousness in my heart. And so did I, by the way. If you're honest with yourself and with God, if you ever desire something that, you never, that wasn't yours, you wanted it for yourself, the Bible says that's stealing. That's coveting. Same thing as stealing. You coveted in your heart. You lusted. You got angry. Those are sins that God deals with. And Paul says, I was dead that day. I realized that I was not righteous. And so it sent them on this trail. Woe is me. God is righteous and I am not. How can this ever be reconciled? It's because God says the righteousness of God, it's in the gospel. It is revealed. Well, how is it revealed in the gospel? One thing for sure, the rightness of God is for him to share it with you. He wants his righteousness to be shared with you, with you, with you individually. He would say to us, you're not, but I am, and we, I have enough for both of us. Come on in. <laughs> I have enough for both of us. Don't bring your own righteousness, because your own righteousness has to do with your standards and the way you see things and the way you want to live things, you know, and, and your standards are always up and down, you know, how we are hypocritical of things, right? And my righteousness is true. And it's, if you can grasp it, that's the gospel, right? It's the righteousness of God. That's the, that's the heart of the gospel. It is not your righteousness. It is the righteousness of God revealed. And he's right. And if he's right, I can't be right. You see, that's where the problem is. We can't both be right. I can't say, I'm right, God. Because he's, he can say, well, I'm right too. Well, who's going to win? And that's the battle in people's hearts today. They believe they're right, and they think God is wrong. And see, if you believe God is wrong, then you got to be right. <laughs> and so if you believe God is wrong and you're right, you have no room for his rightness, his righteousness. And Paul says, I thought that Jesus was completely dead. In Acts chapter 9, he went to stamp out all Christianity. And lo and behold... He, it blew him away. The greatest thing he ever knew is that Jesus was alive. He could not believe that. And the day that you and I came to Jesus, that's the day you and I believed that Jesus was alive. All of a sudden we realized he wasn't dead, he was alive. And that changed completely, all of us. Because if he's alive and he wants to give us his righteousness, then we have to come to him for the righteousness. And I was wrong. And he was right. And I trusted Christ. That's salvation. That's the good news. It's not by man's efforts. It is completely by his righteousness, right? He's right, and he wants to put people right by, by his power and his grace, completely. And the gospel puts people right. That's the power of the gospel. It puts unrighteous people in a righteous stand with God. That's the beautiful part about it. Justified, right? Justification. You would say, God is right now. I am wrong. And the person that doesn't believe, they say, no, God is wrong. He's, he's wrong about this. He's wrong about that. He shouldn't do this. He shouldn't send people to hell. He shouldn't do this. He shouldn't do that. And people go on and on about God being wrong. God being wrong. But the Bible says he justifies us. Right? God justifies us. And here's the justification. The word justification in plain English, God says, you could say it this way. God says, you are all right. 
you are all right. Well, the crazy thing is, I know I am not all right. <laughs> How does he do that, right? Um, the righteousness of God is revealed to the sinner. He puts the sinners on the right side of the ledger. He puts the sinner on the right side of the le ledger. He puts bad people into the right. He puts people that have committed heinous sins and crimes, and he puts them over to the right. And people say, that's not fair. I have tried to be a do-gooder all my life, and these people have sent it up, and now God is going to make it in one moment. He's going to make them right. See? God's wrong. That's what that person is saying. God's wrong. He shouldn't do that. Well, God is right in doing that. But the question is, how can God be right? How can God let people go that are absolutely sinful, that are absolutely wrong? The cross of Jesus is the answer. The cross of Jesus makes it completely clear now. How can God take an unrighteous person to make them right? Jesus, on that cross, was paying our penalty, was paying for our sin, was paying for your unrighteousness, was paying for your disobedience and rebellion and things that you did that you knew you shouldn't have done it, and yet you did it anyway. Rebellion. Jesus, the Messiah, says, I will take on your sins. And Paul puts it very beautifully later on in the chapter, chapter 8, I believe. He says, what the law could not do. Yes. Now, the law is good about doing one thing, showing you you're guilty. <laughs> That's what the law is really good at. You ever stood next to the law? And you, you know, if you lie, of course, you broke one of the commandments. But if, if you stood before the law and you said, seven out of ten, brother. <laughs> How about you? You know, eight out of ten. Hmm. See you next week, right? Let's go back next week and then, okay, how about you this week? Four out of ten. It was a rough week, right? <laughs> and then you, know, you keep, keep evaluating this, right? Six out of ten, four out of ten. But you broke them all. That's what the scripture says. You broke one, you broke them all. How can, how can God let you off? The law can do one thing. Say you're guilty. What the law could not do. What couldn't the law do? Make you right. Paul says what the law could not do, God did it by sending his son, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. That is the gospel. What the law could not do, the law of Moses is not just, it's not the whole Old Testament. The law of Moses is a very specific part of the Old Testament called the 613 laws uh, described in the five books. But there's a lot more to the Old Testament than just those 613 laws. But what the law could not do, God did it in you through his son, Jesus. That is to make you right, to make bad people good. That's what the gospel does. The law just says, you're bad, dude. <laughs> and uh, hopefully you don't lie. Because <laughs> we fought against that all the time. No, I'm not. I'm not that bad. Anthony's worse. Right? <laughs> and there was that comparison, right? Immediately. The scope's on you. What about him? And what about her? Right? You ever got an argument with your wife? Nobody here gets an argument with their wife? Oh, man. I'm a biggest sinner then. I need a lot of prayer. And, and then, you know, something's pointed out and you pour back. Well, you did that. See? It's the Adam and Eve syndrome right, right over again. But see, we have that tendency to look at the law and say, well, uh, yeah, but you did it too. Yes, so all of us did it, <laughs> except Jesus. And he went to the cross. The one that did not deserve to go to the cross 
It's the one that went to the cross. Why was he doing it for? Turn to 2 Corinthians 5. We'll finish with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Lovely chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The cross makes right pe- bad people right. And this is 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus, a God, he, God, made Jesus, him, 2 Corinthians 5.21, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He who knew no sin, he never sinned, he was innocent completely, took on your sins on that cross, bore the sins of many, suffered on that tree, the Bible says, for you and for me, so that in turn, God can give you something that you could not earn and could not work for. Righteousness. Right standing with God. How can a person be right? How can a a sinful person be right with God? Jesus. So God is right. He does condemn sin. See, if God let everybody off the hook, he'd be an evil God. Because he lets everybody go. Doesn't care about right or wrong. He just lets you do whatever you want. But God is not like that. God is not like us. He is right. But he's right in that he should have judged you because you did it. But he's right in that he condemns sin, not in you. He condemns sin in the body of his son. On the flesh of Jesus, all of your sins and my sins was being condemned. And when he was being nailed to that cross, it was absolutely no doubt the wrath of God upon him for you and for me. The wrath you deserved, the wrath I deserved was being borne by him who knew no sin. A famous philosopher, Socrates, says, how, oh, this is Socrates to Plato, I should say. They're both talking, and he says, how can God forgive sin? It's one of the questions here. How can God forgive sin? How can he let a sinful person go? If you say God just lets everybody go, then God is a bad God. But if you can believe that God can make people good by only one way, the cross, then he can make you righteous. He can make you righteous. See, the question is, you believe that that you're bad. (laughs) That's really the question. Because if you believe you're good, you don't need the cross. You don't need the righteousness of God. You say, I have my own. Thank you very much. And you will find on that day, my friend, in 100 years from now, you'll find that you were wrong. And God was right. It is better today to say God is right and I am wrong. So I could obtain his righteousness through faith than to say, no, I am right and he is wrong. Only to find out, my friend, that God is right and all men are liars, including me. Including me. And apart from his grace, we couldn't survive. But let's finish that beautiful chapter, or not chapter, verse. It is revealed from faith to faith. Just very quickly, faith to faith. Without faith, my friend, you won't see the cross. Without faith, my friend, you can't see the righteousness of God. It has to be revealed from faith to faith. And what that means is you begin with faith, you go on with faith, and you finish with faith. From faith to faith. 
that faith is what we call to live by faith. And he quotes a very amazing prophet. You would say, how does that scripture have anything to do with what I'm going through now? It's from the book of Habakkuk, one of my favorite prophets. Habakkuk says, but the righteous shall live by faith. See, Paul has to end with the word of God. You want me to prove it to you, is Paul saying? I'll prove it to you. Turn to your Bible. <laughs> and what they had was the Old Testament. And I'm going to take you to the obscure prophet that nobody reads. When was the last time you read Habakkuk? And in Habakkuk, about a third of the New Testament is based on this one verse. Isn't that fascinating? One third of the New Testament is based on this one verse. The righteous shall live by faith. We're to walk by faith and not by sight, Paul says, drawing from the Old Testament issue of faith. And it's this beautiful word, pistes. It means to faith, to have faith, but to be faithful. It's, it's someone who goes on with faith. That's what it says, from faith to faith. It's not from faith and see you later. You know, I had my wine night stand with God and that was it. It is from faith to faith. You start with faith. You go on with faith and you never outgrow faith. <laughs> it's not like you say, well, I had faith 20 years ago, but now, you know, I'm pretty good now. You go on with faith and faith will take you home. <laughs> Faithfulness will deliver you home. And you ought to walk by faith. But how do, why does Paul quote this obscure passage? Habakkuk 2.4, just go home and read. It's fascinating. The whole thing is the prophet who wrestled with God, and he was wrestling with God about an issue. God, there's so much ungodliness in Israel. You need to do something about this, God. It's crazy. You're letting people do crazy, sinful things. People killing each other and things like that. Sounds a lot like our world. <laughs> uh, people killing each other. Nobody cares about the law. God, you need to do something. This is in Judah. God says, I am going to do something. I'm bringing the Babylonians. What? These people are so wicked, Lord. You're going to bring them in. What are you doing, God? You know, one says, God, do something about it. God does it. And he goes, no, 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 don't do that. Don't bring the Babylonians. These people are very wicked. God says, I'm going to do it. They're already coming. This is before the Babylonians got there. This is some time before the Babylonians got there, but God was warning them through Habakkuk. But Habakkuk, don't worry about this. Don't worry about this because there are going to be people who survive the invasion. This is the context of Habakkuk. Now, in, the, in Paul's understanding, and it's still to this day, the way a Jew would read Habakkuk 2.4 is way different than Jew and I would read 2.4. Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. Well, they say, faith, see, you need to be faithful to the law. That's what the, the understanding, the interpretation of Habakkuk 2.4, according to the Jews, is you need to be faithful to the law. As long as you're faithful to the law, you keep all the commandments, you will survive any trouble. I just proved it earlier. You can't. And they say, well, you, you need to keep the whole law. You need to be faithful to the law. You need to keep all the commandments. Well, what if you can't? Now you're dead. Well, that's not a lot of comfort, but that's the interpretation of Habakkuk 2.4 from the Jewish perspective, meaning the Jews, unsaved Jews. But Paul says, I could see now, and this is why he inserts it in there. I could see all that God meant when he told Habakkuk this. I can see the truth is that we are to live by faith no matter the circumstances we face. I can, I can realize now that if we put our faith and trust in God, we will survive. 
We will go through everything and anything, and we will survive. We will survive an invasion. We will survive the Chaldean invasion. They will live. Those who put their faith in God, they will live. Not faith in the law, faith in him, right? Righteousness. The righteous will live by faith. The person who has been made right by God will live by faith. And those who are not, it's not about keeping the law. It's about living by faith. That is different than keeping the law. If you were to keep the law to survive, you would not survive. But if you put your trust in God and his message of salvation, you will make it. You will survive. And those who are made righteous in God's eye, they will be made right by him and God will keep them and they will go on from faith to faith being righteous. Is that a lovely message? Paul says, I finally got it. I finally understood. Can you imagine if you didn't understand Romans? You would look at Habakkuk and go, man, I'd better get going on the law. Because if I have any chance to survive, I better start keeping 613. And let's say you got to like number 75 and you broke them. You got to start all over again. You go, oh, man, this is, I'm never going to make it. That's right. What the law could not do, making you right, God did it by sending Jesus. And if he's made you righteous, there's only one way to live, my friend. By faith. By being faithful. Keep walking. If you keep walking, you're going to make it. Doesn't matter if the Babylonians come. Doesn't matter if the invasion comes. You are going to make it. In Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you that the righteousness of God is revealed. It's revealed in him. The ultimate revelation is God in the flesh, Jesus, the Messiah. In human form, he came to deliver us from sin. He came to deliver us from the consequences of sin. And he came to deliver us from the power of sin. And Lord, one day you will deliver us completely from the presence of sin. Thank you that in the gospel, it is revealed the righteousness of God, that you want to make people right, that you are endeavoring, Lord, to make people that have broken your commandments and broken your law, and you are endeavored to make them right by faith. We couldn't make it, Lord unless we trusted you and believed personally in what you have done. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that he bore my sins, my personal sins on that cross. I did it. I personally was involved in every one of those, Lord. It was my approval and it was my commitment to it. But Lord, you broke the chains. You saved me from those things. And you put them on Jesus so that you can condemn sin in his body so that you would give me your righteousness in my body. Lord, thank you for making us right. And only you could have done it, Lord. It's not by man's efforts for the keeping of the law, but it's by your grace and power to forgive us. Thank you. And Lord, and help us to live by faith. Help us, Lord, not to walk by sight, but to trust you. Even when we don't know what will happen tomorrow, we trust you that you will be there. 
and you would bring us through everything, even the Babylonian invasion, as you promised Habakkuk. Those who live by faith, the righteous will live by faith, will make it, will survive. And so, Lord, thank you. And we ask you that you would make it real to us by your Holy Spirit. Make it practical, Lord. Make it real to us and make it true. Lord, keep us from academic knowledge of the Bible, although it may be good, but keep us from only academic knowledge of the Bible. Give us, Lord, a real practical way to apply them. That we start loving one another. That we start trusting you and praying and reading and fasting, Lord, as you lead us, you will make it clear to us what we ought to do and what we lack. So, Lord, praise you today, and we honor you in the way we will uh, live today. As we go home today, Lord, help us to love one another, being in fellowship and love with God's people. I thank you for my brothers and sisters to my right, to my left, behind me, in front of me. Bless them, Lord, as well. Lord, I pray for them. I pray that they would find strength and courage And whatever they face this week, Lord, they will find strength in you and they will live by faith as we read today. The righteous will live by faith and help us, Lord, to remind one another, to call one another and to maybe text one another and to encourage one another and say, hey, the righteous shall live by faith. Keep trusting, brother. Keep trusting. Don't give up. Lord, this is how you want us to live, by faith. So thank you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.